that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and you are joining us in the middle of a two-part interview with Melissa Muller, the author of Sicily, Recipes Rooted in Tradition, published by Rizzoli, one of my all-time favorite books. I hesitate to call it a cookbook, a culinary explorations. If you haven't already listened to last week's episode, part one, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen. Just to give you some context, today we're going to talk with Melissa a lot more about the actual food of the island of Sicily. Last week, we really delved more into Sicily as an evolving and changing place and some of the uh, positives and challenges that Sicily faces when it comes to competing in a global market, when it comes to preserving its heritage ingredients and its heritage products, and what her life was like leading up to a big move for her eight years ago to relocate full-time to the island of Sicily. So we're going to hop back into the conversation. We've been talking a lot about some of the challenges that Sicily faces with, as I say, competing in a globalized world and what can be done to reimagine the way that Sicilians not only work but also expose the rest of the world to the treasures of this island and the products of their hard work. So we'd been speaking earlier about bringing Sicilian products to an international market. And we're going to jump back in to that conversation because, as Dolores mentioned in the first episode, many people are in a rapidly globalizing world where so much of our life is separated, you know, reality and the receiver are separated by a screen and a smartphone and an app and things like that. I think people are hungry for authenticity and the the unique quality of things. And I think Italy in general and Sicily in particular is an amazing laboratory for the unique and the authentic. And maybe in many cases, as Melissa points out, it's sort of that jumped off the train to modernity, right? Like the land that time forgot. But at some point we seek out those things again. And I have felt in the past 10, 15 years a great change throughout Italy, throughout the South in particular and Sicily. I think the internet has been a passive marketing tool for the magic of this place and the idea of being able to see these views in places like Marzememi that were unknown for for millennia to to outsiders are now tourist hotspots and destinations in people's minds. They're on their bucket list, even if it's just for taking a picture, I guess. But my point is everybody that I'd spoken to in the past 10 years prior to COVID in the travel industry and tourism would tell me year over year the growth was incredible of people coming into Sicily from the United States and other countries and the economic impact was uh, obviously measurable and was being felt and that's clearly halted as it has throughout the world over the past couple of years. But I always think one of the positives that's come out of this whole COVID epic is the fact that in Italy at least, many people, young people who were not in these towns or in their areas of origin for many, many years, were out either uh, internationally or in Italy's major cities seeking opportunity and employment, have been able to come back and uh, in some ways be forced through virtual and remote work to integrate new technologies into how they do business, how they make money. Melissa, are we still seeing 
any of that trend of people sort of realizing, okay, maybe I can be in these places that are off the beaten path and still, you know, enter into a global life economically and and uh, in terms of the the way that I approach the world. Is that was that a temporary blip in the kind of time we were locked down, or do you think that people will look anew at places that might have been forgotten for a long time? Well, um, from what I feel that uh, the those who are coming to Sicily are looking for the off off the beaten path. In fact, whenever um, for those friends who haven't come to visit where I live so far now, now more than ever, they seem to want to do that and be a part of an area where it, that, that's not for tourists, but more for travelers and explorers. I think that the small villages are gaining uh, not popularity, but um, there's those that are seeking out those types of uh, destinations that are not uh, Tauromina and Palermo and the common known uh, destinations. I think that um, in the world that we live in, it's not only COVID, it's also um, that so many of us are looking for a connection to the past. It doesn't mean that someone has to be Sicilian to come to Sicily to look for that connection to the past. It's just that as humans, we're looking for something that touches our soul. And in Sicily, there's so many places that you, you, I'm sure we can all attest to that. There's so many places that that do that, that that are able to speak to the soul and not just to not just a place where you want to take out your iPhone and take a shot that you've uh, a, a picture that you've been there. But I don't think it's only because of the of the pandemic. I think that it's it's more and more a, a way of wanting to live towards uh, uh, to experience past traditions. What about the Sicilians who have lived in, you know, Torino or Milano or other places to work that maybe have come back during COVID just because of the circumstances? Do you you think they'll stay? Do you think that they see a a new way to integrate and and work from their locality or is that a sort of temporary thing? Well, um, I think for part of the uh, there's some that really just don't want to be back in their in their small village because there's that feeling of wanting to escape the island, but I do see others who are looking for ways and alternative ways to take part in what Sicily has to offer. But again, we go back to that, the discussion of how to do that. And the main problem is really that the Sicilian is is so used to um, being looked for, being searched out from the world. I mean, historically, when we look at all the conquerors that came in, it's because Sicily was an island that people wanted to be in, that it was so fought over uh, because of its richness in fertility, but also because of its central location in the Mediterranean. So the Sicilian thinks that they can sit at home, and because they're Sicilian, they can we can throw out our net when we want to into the water and pull in fish, or just lie out in the country and eat a, eat a fruit and then throw the, the pit and a tree grows. But it's not that simple, and we all know that we need to work in order to build something, but that mentality is what's lacking. And that's what stops those from being able to really come back and stay in the in the small villages. We just need to convince more and more, and that's something I try to do on a daily basis: is try to convince the Sicilians that that they can do that. But the main thing is the work ethic. That was my point before when I brought this up, and my point was that more than ever, right now, there are a lot of people, me included who will seek out things like this. And if you are willing to put in the work to get out of your comfort zone, maybe to learn skills that you did not have before, for instance, social media, the internet, 
going to fairs, as you were saying, networking with other people, learning to take, you know, I, we've all been to Italy. Everybody's on their phone, just like they are here. Mm -hmm. People are taking photos, Facebook, all my cousins, they live on Facebook. So these people, these farmers, as Melissa's talking about, they're on Facebook. So, you know, I think what you're trying to say is their minds need to open a little more to understand how Facebook can take their farms and their products to the world, for instance. And never before have you been able to do that with such capability as you are now. I mean, when I'm upstate, I drive 40 minutes to get raw milk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm one of those people. My next step is just a cow in my backyard. But (laughs) really, that's it at this point. But I will go out of my way and not all that's needed. I'm not saying it's easy, but listen, we're all entrepreneurs here. It's not easy to have your own business. You have to solve problems. I mean, I feel like 95% of what I do is solving how I can get some idea I have and make it a reality, right? That's part of your job. But this is what I'm trying to say. And this, there's, there's real merit in this because I have experience and background in this. You go to your farmer in the Catskills, Hudson Valley area. He has a local clientele that's enough to make it work for him. Okay. Because you get in your car, you drive there, you, you work by word of mouth. I get that. For Italy to export, for these small farmers to export, they do not produce enough individually to export. Okay. As a single. I agree. So what they need to do, but they not that I'm, this is what they, what you have to do is you have to have someone who buys your product and packages it themselves, or you form a consortium and you put it all together. And then when you do all that, you have to really change your mentality and you have to realize. Right. right which is what Melissa said. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm, exactly. But no one necessarily has to export. They can leave and sell just in Northern Italy by going to a small fair that's not the local Sagra del, del Paese. They just need to go outside of Sicily yeah, and right. show their product. And it doesn't mean selling to Japan or to the U.S. But my point is that they could. Of course. But the cancer of the south of Italy, and there are many issues, of the south, one, one major issue of the south of Italy is they are not good at cooperating. It's the orgoglio. Yeah. So what I'm saying to you is that if you had producers of a very special olive oil from the north of Italy, Culturally, if you're in Umbria or Piemonte, Lombardia, Italians, always Italians, but they can work together better than people in the South. And my theory for that is ambitious people from the South were choked by the bureaucracy and left. Oh, you're right. So the guy who would have been the game changer in Campania or Sicily, he was 22 years old. He was disgusted because the guy who ran everything was the count's son or you had to pay somebody off to get a job. So he packed up his bags and he went to New York or Toronto or to Sydney and he got out. Our number one export is not food or wine. Our number one export is people. And Italy lost its best people to countries like the U.S. and Canada and Australia because the message to an ambitious Italian in 1960 was get out. You're not going to be able to make a change here. And they did. And that's why we have an incredibly successful diaspora, Mm -hmm. because if those people had stayed, Italy would be the top country in the world. And like it was for gastronomy, they would have been the top, but they just threw in the town. They said, I'm out of here. That's the message. And I wonder if that's changing today, watching the investment of the European recovery funds. And, you know, look, you look at Italy now, right? We're talking about Sicily. Uh, A Sicilian was just reelected to the 
presidency uh, of the republic, despite his most ardent uh, demurations, I guess, or demurals, whatever you want to say. You know, he, he demurred many, many times from re-election, but there's a certain increase in stability in some ways, you know, with the technocratic prime minister. And I think there's a moment that Italy is looking at where maybe it is ready to address a lot of these fundamental issues and and look in a new way at many historic uh, behaviors and many historic uh, uh, traditions and products and things like that. So I, I, I always feel, despite my Sicilian tendency towards that sort of resignation, I guess, I always feel a little bit of hope in that there are these sparks of creativity and these sparks of um, of uh, improvement, I guess, in the way in the way we do things. I, I'm I'm very hopeful for the place, and we, you know, Pat, you mentioned this great diaspora that we are so proud to be a part of, and Melissa, you know, you, you're the perfect example of uh, that return voyage. You know, you're a diasporic Italian by birth, but a, a Sicilian again by choice. But I, and I think that that's what drew us uh, to the book and and the opportunity to have you here. Thank you, John. This is my question. What were your biggest surprises doing the book, positive and negative? Well, uh, I would say a big surprise was that uh, when I received the book contract from Rizzoli, we talked about me writing an encyclopedia about Sicilian cuisine. So that was a big surprise that I would be given such such an interesting uh, challenge. And then as I started researching more and more, I realized that there's absolutely no way that I could write an encyclopedia about Sicilian cuisine. Not only was my manuscript five times as long as what what, what ended up being published because it couldn't all fit in there. Oh my goodness, really? But, uh, absolutely. Because it is a huge book. Yeah, can we get oh a PDF of that, please? But why don't you do a series? Why don't you do a series? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm working on a second book right now, but it's it's uh, the recipes are intertwined with stories about living in the nature in the center of Sicily in such an uh, untouched area. So it's, it's a different style, but... Um, some of the research from the first book will go in there, but mainly it's uh, reflections that have detailed over the last uh, last eight years. But the thing that was difficult for me was once I started researching for Sicily was I realized there's no way I could write an encyclopedia. It would literally take probably not one lifetime, but multiple lifetimes to do so. And the hardest question always is until today when I'm interviewed, not on a show that uh, that uh, has a knowledge about uh, about Italy, but in other channels, is when I'm asked, can you describe what Sicilian food is or what are the most Sicilian uh, traditional dishes or typical dishes? And I can absolutely say that there's no such thing as one authentic dish or 10 authentic dishes. We have to break down the islands, like we were saying before, uh, look at all the historic influences in different areas, and then really what it boils down to is what's authentic in each family, because every recipe, and I, I say this in the book, but I'll, I'll quote it, is that every recipe is an imprint of the family. It's something that an elderly aunt said to me, and, and I, I absolutely agree with her, because every family has their own traditions, and that's what's traditional. Not caponata or pasta con le sarde, because in every family that's something different. Oh. Please spread that message because I feel like Italians are so crazy with this. You're making it wrong. You, you didn't make that right. You, you know, you, you don't use that. Oh, and every family does it differently. Why is that such a hard concept? And, and let me ask you one more question. If, if 
if you take Campania, right, what is the um, emblematic dish of Campania is the ragu. Oh. And the, the story that I say to people is that, is that pot of Sunday gravy didn't really come along until really like the 18th century because before the tomato came to Italy, you know, Manesta Maradada was the Sunday, was the Sunday meal, right? The, uh, the people out there who don't know it's the vegetable soup with meat that, that, that evolves into the ragu. Mm. And things like um, ricotta pera, the cake, and the litzia limone, they are, they are campagna dishes that have evolved, I'd say, since the 1960s. Do you see in Sicily new dishes evolving or new ingredients like, like coming into the Sicilian cuisine where you'll see maybe there'll be dishes 50, 60 years from now that people will take as Sicilian, but are being born now as we speak because the influences of different cultures coming into Sicily are different ingredients? Well, uh, hmm. There's new ingredients that are being grown uh, grown in Sicily, like John said earlier. There's the kiwis that are being grown on Etna. There's uh, mangoes that are grown on the western coast that are not typical of Sicily, but they're not necessarily becoming part of traditional dishes. Traditional dishes are traditional, either in a family or in an, in, a, in an area. And it's not so typical that a caponata, the way it's made in Modica, using bitter chocolate would suddenly have a have a new ingredient uh, added to it just because that new ingredient uh, now is something that the industry is bringing uh, onto farms in Sicily. So I don't see it as becoming a part of a new Sicilian cuisine because that cuisine is dictated by the family, the homes. What is new is that the, there's a, so many, many different Sicilian chefs who have worked uh, internationally and then come back to Sicily and uh, with their Michelin starred restaurants, all beautiful. And they're recreating and uh, just like anywhere else in the world, recreating and, ma and uh, making new, new traditional dishes. But that stays within the restaurant realm. It's not something I see as representative of what Sicilian cuisine is and has been historically. You mentioned that many interviewers will ask you to list um, <laughs> the, the most typical dishes. And then, we all know the place too well to sort of fall down that trap, right? Yeah. But I will ask, as you traveled around the island, did you encounter any recipes and ingredients that really surprised you, that were completely, you know, so, sometimes I find I go to places in Italy and uh, you end up in a town where they're still cooking something that has been pretty much the same way since uh, Roman times or medieval times, you know, an ingredient that might sort of shock you that it's still on a, on a menu or, or in somebody's kitchen. Was there any uh, recipes or ingredients that you encountered that really surprised you? Well, probably in terms of ingredients, uh, I would say one is the uh, manna, which is the sap of the ash tree. And this product I had, had never heard of growing up. And I don't think that many uh, Italian Americans would know about manna. But uh, I found that there's uh, different growers of the ash tree in the, um, uh, the Madonia Mountains on the north coast of, of Sicily, and that it's used uh, not, not only for, as a diuretic or it's used in pharmaceutical products, uh, natural products, of course, but it's used as an alternative type of sweetener for uh, diabetics and for others. And it's, and it's tasty, too. It's made into candies and with chocolate and uh, but that was one product, for example, that I would bring back because when I researched, I was based out of when I was on the western side of the island, I would base myself out of my home in my grandmother's village. So every day I would take a trip or every two days I'd come back and then I would bring to my cousins, my friends, uh, whatever these ingredients were. 
And I have to say that 80% of what I would bring back, they had never heard of and never seen. And that's what's so amazing is that it really shows you how each area is so uh, tight-knit in their own traditions. And what happens on the, the other side of the island is, is really like the other side of a continent. In terms of, um, in terms of dishes, well, I, I probably uh, never could have imagined that uh, a dish called caponata could have so many different variations. I mean, hun hundreds of different variations that I must have found around the island. Uh, I was shocked that in Modica, they use bitter chocolate. That always stays with me as the bitter chocolate because it sounds so strange, but then at the end, it's very tasty. But if you say such a thing in Palermo, for example, that a caponata could have bitter chocolate in it, yeah, the response is that absolutely not, that that's not the recipe. <laughs> not <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, the real way of making it, and then you know, you'll, you'll learn what the real way of making it. The right it. way. <laughs> the yeah. right way, yeah. Pasta yeah. with sardines is another dish that in uh, Palermo, you definitely don't use tomato. In my grandmother's area, it was not made with fresh sardines because being in the mountain, even on the coast, but just slightly on the mountain, fresh fish historically didn't arrive. But had to arrive salted, and they would add uh, tomato in turn to make it uh, to make it somewhat more sweet and take away the saltiness. Mm. But it still has the same name of the dish. Well, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many people out there know that, but chocolate came into really continental Europe through Sicily. Yeah, exactly. Most exactly. I'm correct, right? Right through absolutely. And that area around Maltica, that's because the way that the Sicilians use chocolate is the closest way to how the natives in Mexico use the chocolate before. The Spanish arrived. Exactly. So I think that it makes so much sense that they would use dark chocolate in that area, bitter chocolate, because they are really the heart of chocolate in, in Europe. That's where it comes from. Yeah. So it, it's so it's so tied to the history of that area, of the area of Maldica. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, chocolate lovers, to understand really what chocolate is, other than that being in the New World, it, those in Europe, I would say go to Maldica, and there's so many different chocolate factories with the... Um, the old style uh, chocolate making, the Aztec style, which is what chocolate really is, because then chocolate added with milk added to it is milk chocolate, but it's not it's not what actual chocolate is. So, you know, you're absolutely right. I always bring Modica chocolate back from <laughs> Sicily when I go. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me because as I read your biography before we came on, mm. you are... Um, an anthropologist by education, right? Mm -hmm. And then a journalist afterwards. You studied, I studied anthropology. I think we may have um, a few screws loose in, in that, you know, when you, you bite into a bar of chocolate, it's not just a, a quick snack or a sweet treat, but there's a whole anthropology to sure. what you're experiencing. There's a sort of time travel and, and place travel. And, you know, if you, if you bite into a bar of Modi or a piece of Modica chocolate, it's got a, a a grainier texture you feel the sugar crystals and grainier. and it's it, it is it's time travel it's it just transports you to a different place and time and a different world and, and i think there's so many encounters like that in italy that are uh, so human so raw and authentic and you know you talk about an, like a caponata and every family having their own and i for years i i learned to cook with my grandparents and my great-grandmother made a sauce uh, in my family, that was a quick tomato sauce and very, very minimal ingredients and a very distinct taste. And we could never find a recipe for it anywhere out there. And she said that she learned it from a neighbor and this and the other. 
And it was this wonderful sort of family heirloom taste that I, I, we still all look forward to on a regular basis, but nowhere else in the world did we ever encounter it. So as I became in, inclined towards anthropology and this kind of stuff, it became a goal of mine to sort of see if I could find it anywhere. And, and it's become this wonderful activity for me going through Sicily because I've found many places and many people both in Sicily and in the Sicilian diaspora in America who make a version of it with the different ingredients. So I've met people in Sicily who make it, but they add um, iritsa, the, the um, sea urchins. The ah, iritsa, right. mm-hmm. yeah. And it gives it a whole new flavor profile. Or other people where nearer to Modica in those areas where there's a, the chocolate is added into it, and that's a totally different taste of this mm-hmm. sauce. And then in America, New Orleans, I met a family who makes it almost exactly the same, but they put squid ink in it. And it's, yeah. you know, so then again, it's a whole new, and I love the fact that you can have all of these varietals, many of which were just sort of born out of necessity or creativity or whatever, and they, they get passed down like these heirlooms. And, and that to me is what the cuisine is all about. Well, caponata itself was born out of um, a, a, a seafood dish. Capone is a, is a type of fish. And it, before using eggplants, it was made with making sweet and sour uh, capone fish on the western coast. Yeah, wow. Wow. And that's then incredible. it became, and that's where the name caponata da capone. Uh, and then the eggplants being so versatile and so uh, such a perfect vegetable that can replace seafood or meat. That's the traditional dish known today, but it came from came from replacing the fish. That's kind of mind blowing, actually. Really, when you think about that, like that, that, uh, and I wonder if there's still places in in Sicily where there is a fish version of it. You know, uh, no, absolutely, yeah, uh, not just with pesce capone, but also with swordfish. It's very you see it very often. Wow. Let me ask you a question: If you go to the um the Albanian, the Italo Albanian, the Abarish community in Sicily, mm-hmm. did you find any very interesting dishes while you were researching from them? Well, um, they're very. Um, they're they're very good at sweet making, uh, dessert making, um, and of course they're they're known for their cannoli. But it's really the reason they're known for the cannoli is because the the ingredients that they put in the in the shell um, they add a touch of red wine to the to the although they're very secretive I have to say <laughs> with giving <laughs> recipes. Um, but uh, I visited a few different families there, and and that red wine that goes into the dough gives it um, a lighter airy airiness it also makes the makes the um makes the shell a little bit uh, darker than a, a normal one but it gives it this sort of friabile very very soft uh, shell experience so there uh, that's one thing i could think of um there they had many different types of desserts that i learned from them uh, one were um is a dessert that now you see very often in Palermo pastry shops, it's called a San Martinello, where they they, they make a, a small brioche that has a fennel seed and clove in it. And then uh, it's um, dunked in some uh, rum or just a little bit of, of an alcohol and then uh, filled in the middle with ricotta, a ricotta cream. That's a really, really beautiful recipe. Wow, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> that sounds very good. Spiciness and then the sweetness to it. It's funny. You, you think about where things came from and, and how they come into cuisine and, you know, uh, the Italo-Albanian Abaresh community. I was uh, with my wife last night. My wife is Abruzzese in Tuscan. Oh. And we happened to stumble onto a new website for Abruzzese products uh, to buy artisanal products in, in, here in the States. And there was a product that she'd never heard of 
called Ventricina Teramana, and I'm reading that because I, I wrote it down. And it's a um, it's a it's a, a pork spread, fat and mm. mountain herbs and um, almost like a, a Polish and Jewish schmaltz, like the lardo mm. uh, spread. And I was reading a little bit about the product description. They were saying, you know, a, a cousin of Andoja, the the Calabrese yeah. uh, spicy Spices. spread. Mm. And then we started going back in our mind because we had traveled with the Galabresi friend from America, but she was uh, Arboresh, Italo-Albanian, and we, we visited her town in Calabria, and they served their version of Andoja, but it was a fish and not a pork. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these things are so interconnected and evolve into one another, and uh, it, there really is no way to find the sort of... Um, first sighting of, of these kind of things, right? I mean, everything evolves over time and place in different ways. And uh, what what one family calls the same thing is completely different to another family. And I I think that that's, you say, like you, you can't write an encyclopedia of these things, right? Because you'd have to go to every town and every family and Absolutely. everybody's doing it. So that's, that's the beauty of Italy. That's the, that you can't even see the mosaic pieces in it because they're so micro and there's so many different versions. How about Arab dishes or Jewish dishes or Norman? Did you ever go on this and say, oh, this is definitely, this came with the Normans or, the, you know, the unknown? Because I know you went to a, a bazillion different little villages mm. where there's, uh, you know, a, a, a frazione of 400 people where they make a dish that they don't even make in the other frazione. Exactly. Was there any ones that when you came in as an anthropologist and said, wow, this definitely came from the Arabs or wow, you could definitely see the Normans had their hand in this because, you know, like couscous. Couscous became really part of Sicilian cuisine. If I'm, I mean, you're the expert, most you would know. Oh, but, no, you know, uh, it's... absolutely. Um, couscous on the western coast of Sicily is um, is is very popular. Um, but there's a mix there because there's a little bit of misconception about it being from the Arab domination, or because there's so many North Africans that have moved up into that area of Sicily. So. That one, sometimes I, I, I hesitate to, to look at it as a dish that's been historically in that area, uh, so deep-rooted in the Trapani and Marsala for, for so many centuries, because we're going back now, if we, the Arab rule was the uh, 10th century, 10th, 11th century, uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, when the Normans came in. But uh, one thing I did study was... Um, the Arabic language when I was uh, at uh, as, as an undergrad because I was so fascinated by the roots in the Sicilian dialect with so much of the Arabic. And uh, when you look at dishes like um, uh, cassata that very most likely come from the word cassat, which is the, bake, the, the baking dish. Uh, that could be a, that different food historians have said that's the case, that's not the case. But the, the root of the word sounds very much very similar. But then when you look at that dish, the cassat being a cake, it's filled with a layer of what? Ricotta. Ricotta goes back to the Greek period because Homer in the Odyssey already spoke about ricotta being on the eastern coast of of Sicily. And then we talk about that there's the frutta martorana or or the almond paste that was introduced during the Norman period. Then we talk about that there's chocolate bits inside a caponata. Well, that came through the Spanish conquistadors bringing, bringing to Sicily and then and transforming uh, into what we know as chocolate today. Um, then we have the look of a cassata that looks very Baroque in style. That was uh, created by a Palermitan pastry, pastry chef in the, um, about two centuries ago. 
but that has a Baroque style to it. So we have a dish that is supposed, could be, looks like it's it was created during the Arabic period. Oh, I should mention that there's sugar in the dish and sugar came during the Arabic period and was a very large industry under the Jewish Sicilians in, uh, until, um, until the late uh, 1400s uh, when the Jewish community was no longer in Sicily. Uh, but all of those ingredients make up a dish that you're eating a mosaic of history. So is that dish Arabic? Well, that's not really Arabic just because the name is, but it has elements going back to the Greek period all the way up to almost to, to, to two centuries ago. And every dish is like eating a bit of history when you look at Sicilian traditional dishes. Maybe even the, the rice ball was, uh, there's theories that the rice ball was invented as a sort of timbalo to bring inside in in the country on your horse when uh, to eat cold uh, during the arabic period filled with the meat so that it was rich in protein but the the shell of the of the rice around it kept the kept the protein protected that's kind of like our version of a cornish pasty in the uk right the working lunch that's all in one package oh, yeah, and the, yeah. the meat and yeah you know the same right, sort right. of functionality that has become you know this great delicacy uh why are you doing this i'm intermittent fasting today oh no <laughs> i'm going crazy okay oh if you could break your fast for one sicilian dish what know. would it be right now oh wow i mean listen i give sicilians a hard time because that's what I'm supposed to do. But there's some Sicilian dishes I really love. I mean, and John, John calls himself like the world's, like these Sicilian Sicilians. That can't, that'll never be because he hates the greatest Sicilian product of all times, cassata. Yeah. I love a cassata. I love, you don't understand. I could make love to a cassata. I, I long, <laughs> I lust, I long, I love the candy. It's like every beautiful thing in the world all came into one product candied fruits which i love the marzipan like the covering which i love the rigotto, the chocolate the panda spagna it's like and the rum it's like and i hate to give you guys credit but that really is like the greatest i i love it. but to to the credit of the neapolitan people they adopted cassata there's a lot of places in naples that had cassata around christmas now it's a knockoff right because the neapolitan simplified it but um, cassata is definitely uh, cassata. I love uh, pinoli nut free because I'll die because I have a pine nut allergy of, of the pasta cusarde. I love that. The rice balls. If you had to ask me like the ideal Sicilian meal, like my, like I, I would love to eat that right now. Like I'm fantasizing at this moment. <laughs> I would say I would have a rice, but rice balls a little heavy for an appetizer, but I would go for that. And I and it's really classical stuff. I mean, the stuff you're known for, and it's not playing to the audience, but, you know, the caponata, the rice balls, pasta cusarda, um, something, a sweet and sour rabbit or a sweet and sour chicken that the people from Ribera do phenomenally well, right? Agrigento, they're, they're like the king. I mean, I, I'll have to say, I have a weakness for the foods of Agrigento. There's something about Agrigento, it's like we're all where everything kind of comes together. Am I right with that? Would you say that? It's like all Sicily's best and brightest kind of land there, in a sense. I that's where my grandmother's village is, and that's where I live today. Uh, but we have to also look at the province of how large it is, going from the southern coast all the way up to the heartland, uh, 
we're at that where my grandmother's village is is all the way at one point and where we are now is right at the extreme other end in the heartland and they're completely two different realities and you know i was going to say but maybe it shows a message into my mind i also love the food of ragusa of that area sure but then i'm thinking to myself the sicilian foods i like come from the sicilians i grew up around yeah, uh, sure, sure. So sure. now I'm thinking to myself, I like all these things, but then I'm connecting it to people. You know, the, the huge community from Santa Croce Camarina, they make those fantastic uh, quints, I guess, from the cotonia, the quints cotonia. molded. Um, cotonada. Yeah, cotonada, the cotonada. Um, I don't even know how you would say it. for an American, for someone in this country or the United States or somewhere who has never experienced that. I don't even know how I would explain I mean, Melissa, how would you explain a cotonata? Jellied molds of uh, queen's paste uh, molds. But so much more. But the one beautiful thing about that is, more kudos out to the Sicily is, Neapolitans, I don't want to say we're sloppy. That's not, we're not as, uh, we're not as um, visual as Sicilians are with their food. Right. No, you're absolutely. Sicilians are so into the aesthetic, right? So you make a Neapolitan would make a a cotonata molded in a a, a arut, the regular pan, but it would just be like round. But with the Sicilian, you make it in these beautiful copper tins in the this form of fishes and other things. Because to your credit, and sometimes your food does some. The weakness I think of Sicilian food is sometimes you sacrifice aesthetic for taste. Sometimes with like like votive breads and stuff like that. That's just coming from Campania. Yeah, but that that's not those aren't even meant to be eaten though. A votive bread, for example. No one in Campania would make a loaf of bread they didn't eat. They would never eat. That would never. This just wouldn't happen. I'm saying the different. You're you're like the 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 fruit of Martorana. You're just really good at aesthetics, and I love that. Oh, you know what you do really well. You guys are very good with. Rose water. You I, the stuff that I, the weaknesses I have for Arab food, food of the Levant. That you guys do a good job on that. Pat, you're very enthusiastic about Sicilian cuisine today. The enthusiasm is coming from an intermittent. If I wasn't intermittent fasting, I don't know if I'd be so excited right now. <laughs> I might come here. I might tortured. You can't fast on the days that we record. We should have learned that by now. Nah, nah but- it's good. You know, uh, it keeps me contained. It's just like self-flagellation. <laughs> no, because if I ate the way I want every day, I, I. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. You know what's the greatest thing that ever happened to me? Yeah. I'm allergic to pine nuts, deathly allergic, so I can't eat out a lot. Because mm-hmm. if I did, I would kill myself in a Sicilian bakery. Oh. <laughs> if I, I, I'd spend a thousand, I would go crazy. But then you could eat in Sicily because pine nuts are almost uh, so hard to find nowadays that rarely any uh, any pastry shops Thank will you make cookies with pine nuts anymore in Sicily. Is that right? It's- As they keep going up in prayer. Thank God. You've heard my prayer. Wow. I just had that conversation with my father-in-law because he, he's up at says We were talking about Pat almost accidentally eating a pine nut. Uh, we won't mention where. And uh, <laughs> it was a scary day, uh, a scary two days. And he was saying, you know, in his uh, they don't eat them in, in his local cuisine, in his part of the Abruzzo, but he was saying, you know, he always associated them with Sicilian cuisine. And, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was, you know, kind of fair. I, I see them in a lot of the stuff that my family makes. But, yeah, I guess they are becoming so expensive. I wish I knew what they tasted like. Are they that good? Yeah. But I like okay, yeah. maybe one day. I want to start my own March of Dimes to cure this. <laughs> cure. And I go in a bakery and eat what I want. I want to just underline something really important about Sicilian cuisine that we really have to mention is that there's 
the two distinctions, the aristocratic cuisine, yes, and which can be traced back to the early 1800s because the wife of Ferdinand the First, who was king of Sicily and Naples, of course, um, he was married to the sister of Marie Antoinette, Maria Carolina, and she imported French chefs to the royal court of Palermo. Uh, they were known as the Monzu chefs. And so the royal court uh, or and noble families throughout throughout Sicily had these so-called monzu. The, the word was a stem trying to be able to say monsieur in French, so monzu in, in Sicilian. And these chefs were bringing French cuisine in an aristocratic uh, context. And then what happened was the peasant cuisine tried to reflect and tried to, let's call, um, with their creativity, uh, tried to uh, copy that in a certain way. And so many dishes that are known today, the traditional dish that's known today comes from a copy of the aristocratic dish. For example, there's a dish uh, you hear of made in many different ways again, but the name of the dish would be sardia beccafico. Mm -hmm. so this, is a, this is sardines made in the style of beccafico, which is the name of a small bird. Aristocratic cuisine uh, had this dish was made with the beccafico, the, the actual birds and they would uh, roast them with the uh, tail up so that you could see the tail either on a skewer uh, or baked so that the tail would be up. The sardines that are now the popular version of the, the only known version of this dish is sardines made in the style of Beccafico. And in fact, you see always the tail coming up that's supposed to resemble the bird. And we could go on and on about so many dishes that stem from the Sicilian uh, irony and creativity of saying we're going to create a dish that reflects the these uh, aristocratic kitchens one of my favorite experiences pat and i've ever shared because as the audience knows we do a lot of work for the constantinian order of saint george which is a an international charity it's still under the patronage of the borbone delle due sicilie so the the, oh, okay. the descendants of maria carolina and ferdinand we work for them here in the u.s and so we've had the opportunity to go to Italy for a lot of conferences with them. And, and, you know, I have to say, I've had some amazing experiences in Sicily. Talk about the Sicilian identity. Uh, I, I've seen, you know, the Borbone family present at events come out on a balcony and there's thousands of people in the piazza and, you know, the, the sense of their history being uh, reclaimed has been amazing. But one of them that always sticks with me, that reminds me of no matter what circles we travel in and what we've accomplished here in America, we're all still coming from that Cucina Povera because... Pat and I and some other colleagues of ours were at an event with them at the Noble Club in Rome, the Cercola della Caccia, which is still <laughs> membership reserved only to the nobility, right? Even though Italy's a republic. <laughs> and I was starving. And they put out all the all this manzu type food, but I didn't know that, right? Because I don't I've never eaten that. Oh. And I'm I'm standing with Pat and I'm kinda of elbowing him. I'm like, wow. Look at those beautiful mozzarella over there. I'm like, I, I've got to get one before they're gone because there's only like 10 on the plate and there's you know, hundreds of people in this room. <laughs> so I run over and I like, you know, cafone style, like push it onto my plate with amongst other things. And I take a big fork and I'm talking and I'm not looking and I stick it in my mouth and I realize it is an egg uh -huh. covered in a, an aspic jelly, you know, a, a bone. Right? And it's this Munzu uh -huh. ancient noble and I thought to myself, first of all, what a massive disappointment that I thought I had a beautiful fresh mozzarella. And secondly, why would they still eat this after all these centuries? You know, like, why would you choose to keep that on your table as cold egg in bone jelly? But they still eat that way in a lot of these places, you know. In, in the Cilento, there's a nursery rhyme about the monzu. Um, and I, I don't know, most of you might know this. There was a book that came out. The woman was a Sicilian uh, noble. 
and she took the cookbook. So just for like, for our listeners to know is that, sí. and Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong, that families would have these huge epic cookbooks, basically how they like dishes prepared. Uh, absolutely. And, for the and family. When, though, for the, the family, public. for the family. And, and when they would get a new chef, a new monzu, he would make the stuff according to the book because that's the way they liked it. And um, this woman, I, I forget her name, and I should have gotten the book. Tascalanza. Is that her, the one who's, uh, she took the family book and published it, basically? Well, um, Parts of it? Anna Tascalanza, who's no longer with us, she wrote, the, she wrote several books, and I know she, she used family recipes. And uh, her daughter, Fabrizia, also wrote another book about coming home. She lived in northern Italy and came back to Sicily. A beautiful book about uh, the recipes of the family that are uh, at uh, Regaliali. Wow. All I remember is that I saw some of her recipes. So I guess she said that it became fashionable to get rid of a private chef, the Monzu, I guess in the 80s. It was considered modernizing, not to have the live-in Monzu. Right, right. And she had her family, um, were one of the last ones to have the Monzu. And when she went through the, the family recipes, I was like stunned because, I mean, John and I make jokes how the aristocratic cooking was different than the peasant cooking, but it was just like cream. It was just like creamy, bechamel ham with everything right 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 and john i have said it the poor people ate the greens and the beans and and the legumes that people thought were peasant food but they're the ones who live to be into their 90s and their hundreds and the rich people ate a a different diet and i think they had i think the peasants had longer longevity than the rich people did all things being equal and it was just shocking how different that their food was and I, I never, I think John and I traveling in Italy and being in the presence of, of people from that tradition and eating their food, it's kind of stunning when you think about it. And I said to myself, wow, this was the comfort food of the aristocracy, but it was completely foreign to the people who worked for them. Yeah, it's, it's a competing tradition. Well, to really understand Sicilian cuisine, it's like I said earlier, it's a lifelong mission uh, and it's very challenging, but it's not so much about the realization of the recipes, but what's behind those recipes in all senses. And it's a lot like it's people, mysterious, profound. I got to ask you another another question because you're from Route 17. You're from North Pat, Pat, before you start, I'm sorry, let me interrupt. Um, I have have to go. I have to go get the the baby done. They're making sobrasada in the basement right now. And I got to take the baby. (laughs) I got to take the baby from my mother now. It's been more than an hour. But Melissa, I didn't get to ask you I don't think one question that I had for you. Hmm. So uh, I have my own show, my, a, a separate podcast oh. uh, called Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. And my next season is slow down. Oh, okay. And I think you'd be a terrific guest. So why don't you come on my show and we'll, okay. we'll talk more about the rituals, the traditions, the living with nature, the slowing down stuff. Absolutely. And that sounds okay. I would love that. But just one thing, Dolores, we can definitely do that, in a, and it's absolutely my pleasure. But would be even be more my pleasure would be that if you, and of course everyone involved today in the show, but if you come to visit me uh, on the land of Montoni, me and my family, and we, and I can introduce you to the land, and you can all make your own firsthand relations with this wonderful hermitage. We would, we would love that. And believe it or not, we might take you up on that offer if you can handle us. Because we actually, <laughs> we've actually been talking about making, once hopefully things lighten up, we'd, we'd all really like to take a trip together. And I would love to come see your winery and, and all of that. Would love that. Absolutely. We could have a beautiful day, not only in the nature, but we could uh, pick from the garden and then go into the kitchen and 
Uh, yes, play in the yeah. kitchen together. So. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it really does. We'll continue it's... the conversation. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I can definitely say, Melissa, we are all of us enthusiastically willing to come out and see you in Sicily. Your passion for the island uh, matches my own, probably surpasses it. You know, it's a place that is so special to so many of us here in the United States. Such a significant diaspora of Sicilian Americans and Sicilians all over the world because this island has... So much to offer, so much diversity, so many amazing things. And, you know, Melissa, thank you for your work in cataloging what you have been able to catalog. If you are ever looking for someone to uh, just compliment and enjoy your five times longer manuscript, <laughs> you've got uh, you've got our email. I would okay. definitely love to read it. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next project from you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for spending so much time with us. You've earned your uh, honorary membership here at the podcast. So anytime you want to come back and tell us what you're doing, please, please Thank feel you, free. John. Do the encyclopedia. No. Do 30 volumes. This is going to be your life's work. Do it. The world needs it. It is my life's work, but the encyclopedia, I'll be 554 years old by the time I can, I can maybe, maybe Do it. it. And now I have to say this to all our listeners. Buy the book, buy it for your friends, buy it for your relatives, yeah, buy the book. birthday <laughs> gift, you, Valentine's Day gift, Christmas gift, Mother's Day, Father's Day. She's killing herself over there, going, walking through mud and climbing mountains and talking to old ladies who are holding on to recipes like nuclear secrets. <laughs> the third reprint is coming out now. So that's, that's good news. Is that I will say it is one of my all-time favorites. It is well-worn already in the few years we've had it. And Melissa, you say that the third edition is coming out soon? The third, uh, not edition, the third reprint of, of the book. Ah, the there, third reprint. It's only just went into reprint. I think by March it'll be out. Right now it's it's not available, uh, let's say, on Amazon, but it will be again soon. And I am going to buy it. John, you never told me about this. Yeah, you got to get it. I will definitely get this book. So it's been really well received then, huh? Well, it, it's definitely if it's uh, the reprints definitely mean that it's um, – that it's it's looked for. I always say that uh, Rizzoli is such a wonderful publisher and the quality of the book also printed in Italy, uh, something I really was very important for me. The quality of the photographs of the of the graphic layout, the cover, uh, even just um, sometimes when I see a photograph of a, of, a, of a bookshelf, you can really spot the word Sicily coming out at you. And uh, I, I think that it's uh, there's it shows that so many people are looking for Sicily. I couldn't agree with you more. Sicily recipes rooted in tradition by Melissa Muller from Rizzoli, and it is uh, like all Sicilian things, like like the cassata. It's as beautiful to look at as it is to devour intellectually, and uh, I highly recommend it. So this has been so much fun. I'm glad we finally got to do this. And uh, thank you. Tom. Yeah, you come back anytime, and and highly <laughs> okay. encourage everybody to get it. You will not regret this wonderful labor of obvious love. So hope everybody enjoyed this two-part dive into an island I love very, very much. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italiano and-